We are going to now pick up our series. We've been looking at the parables of Matthew 13. And I want to encourage you to open a Bible in front of you if you have one, one of the brown ones. If not, there's some on the tables back there. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read to you um, verses 44 to 46, two very short parables that belong together on one theme. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, the heart of these two parables is... To do with the whole thing of, of, of making a trade. Before I get into that then, I want to just very, say a very brief prayer. And let's just ask God to come speak to us through this. This is some of the most powerful, punchy thoughts that Jesus left and with us to really impact us. And I want us to pray that God would speak to us. Father, we thank you for, Lord, your son and his amazing words and his teaching and the power of his life and death and resurrection. And Lord, as we, as we now want to marinate in your word and just seek to, to chew on it and understand it, I pray, Lord, that your voice would ring out like a clear bell, resonating in our hearts, Lord, speaking to us all in the ways that we need to hear you, in the ways that we need to change. Speak to me, Lord, I pray. Speak to my brothers and sisters here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the heart of these, these two little parables is this idea of making a trade, um, of transferring one thing for another in preference for the thing you've been wanting. When I was um, a child, a couple of times at school, I made some terrible trades which just proved that I could never be a businessman. Um, one time at primary school, I had a large marble. Do you remember... Maybe you, maybe I don't know if this is ever a craze when you were a kid, but at one stage, marbles were, were in, and I, I got some marbles, and I had one big, fat, beautiful marble. My dad, by the way, used to pay us pocket money, 10p for every year of our age. So, as you can imagine, by the time you're 10 years of age and you get a pound a week, you can't really, it doesn't go very far. And by, by the time you're 15, it still, it goes even less far. But, um... So I was, I was only at primary school at the time. I bought this big fat marble. My best friend um, said, let's do a swap. He had, what he, what he told me was an emerald. It was actually just a little green plastic, piece of plastic from his mum's brooch. And we made the trade. And what made it worse was that the minute I swapped this thing, I lost the emerald in the tarmac of the playground and never found it since. Um, that was one of my worst ones. Another one which actually... Um, still fills me with regret and bitterness was that I had a fountain pen which um, was actually my granddad's fountain pen and um, I found it in a drawer at home I took it to school I made use of it please don't tell my mum and and there was a kid in my class who had what was basically probably the most top of the range piece of technology at the time 
a spell-checking spell device, which is about the same size, well, actually bigger than an iPhone with an open lid, and you could type in a word and it would tell you it's a dictionary, and, and I think it had slight thesaurus capacities as well. This thing was out of date within about six months, and I swapped it for this, what could never be replaced, fountain pen. And all I'm doing now is just proving to you what an idiot I am, isn't it? <laughs> as far as I've got with this message. But what I'm trying to say to you is that some of the, some of the biggest decisions in life have to do with this concept of, of trading. If you think about um, making a choice about who you're going to marry, um, that is actually, at its, at its essence, a trade, a decision. You trade your singleness, your, you could say to some level, a degree of freedom, and certainly your options for, in preference for the one that you found and you decided, um, I'm going to marry him or her. Um, then I've actually sort of counseled a number of guys who have been dating a girl for some time and they just cannot, they can't push themselves. They just like rabbits in front of a pair of headlights, panicking. Um, none of the guys in this room who are married, by the way, other guys who you don't know, um, because of this element that you're making a trade, you're exchanging something you can never get back and, and you're permanently taking on board a different state in life. And some of the biggest decisions in life are like that. They are trades. So when you decide and you commit on a career path, you are trading certainly a portion of your life, certainly that portion of your life um, to pursue a particular path. And that's why decisions can be so hard. But rather than just thinking of the big decisions, even your day-to-day -day decisions are a trade. You trade your time, your energy, your resources, your finances in pursuit of something all the time. We are constantly making trades, transactions, and so when Jesus talks here and, and just gets to this very basic human thing of, of making a trade, he's, he's, talk, he's touching on a subject which resonates with all of us. We understand exactly what he's talking about here. But what makes this more spectacular and difficult and challenging is the fact that this trade has an absolute nature to it. It's, it's the most... Um, High stakes trade you could ever engage in. You see how it's echoed in a couple of, in both parables that the men, they sell all that they have. They give up everything for this trade. So Jesus is talking here about something which has an absolute character. And really what he's talking about is, is conversion. Is when a person finds Christ, understands what Christ is about, and makes the decision that they are forever going to be joined, as it were, to to God, to his people, to become a Christian. And they make this trade. They trade off what was um, their options, like in marriage, their singleness almost, their sort of all the things that uh, were true of you before you became a Christian to embrace this exclusive faith, just like in exclusive marriage. And because also of the scope of, of the kingdom. The, all the parables in this chapter are about the kingdom of God. And the scope of the kingdom is something which touches every part of your life. That's something we've talked about. Something which, if you read the Bible, becomes evident. That there is no part of your life that Jesus isn't interested in. And because of the scope of the kingdom, that means that this is even more high stakes. So one of the things Jesus doesn't leave an option for here is straddling the fence. He doesn't say that it's possible anywhere in the Gospels, in fact he says the opposite, that it's impossible to sit on the fence when it comes to Christ, to sort of have a little bit of Christ, a little bit of religion. I think that's probably one of the biggest sicknesses of British Christianity especially, is this idea that I can have a little bit 
of religion that's just confined to a time in my week and a time and place, but it doesn't actually infiltrate other parts of my life. It doesn't touch my wallet. It doesn't touch my time, my relationships, my career. Nothing else is impacted. And Jesus says emphatically that that isn't an option. You can't straddle. You can't have a little bit of Christ. You can't sort of pick and mix when it comes to these things. It is an absolute claim upon you. When, um, when, you, when you discover Christ and you, you know about the kingdom. And so these parables, these two parables, push us towards decision. And this is something that's relevant to, on the one hand, to someone who's not a Christian. I don't know what you think of Christ. I don't know what, whether you would claim to be a follower of Christ. Um, wherever you're at in respect to him, at some point you have to make a decision whether to walk away or to embrace him. All of us do. As soon as we know about him, we have to make a decision. But this is also relevant for us, as we've been Christians for years, some of us decades, that this is an ongoing thing, that Christ keeps confronting us with this as a daily decision even, of what this trade-off means to embrace the kingdom, the pearl, the treasure, in preference against everything else in your life. What does this trade involve then? Let me just try and unpack this from a couple of angles, a couple of facets of this. And I think, it's gonna, I think it will be challenging to all of us. It certainly has been to me. The first side of it is you've got to look at what you have to give up. Jesus says of both these men that they gave everything. It's there in verse 44. He says, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Um, again, in, in verse 46, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. This is the strongest terms imaginable. You can imagine these guys, they, they may have owned houses, clothes, um, just day-to-day items, crockery. Everything was, was sold. I don't know if you can picture these guys walking around naked, but... At least everything that they needed to survive was, was gone in preference for the thing they found, which was the treasure or the pearl. And it's a picture here then of what it means for us as Christians, as I've been saying, that every aspect of your life is, is touched by the gospel, is touched by Christ, is touched by the claims that he makes upon you. Someone said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Certainly that's the picture that Paul paints when he talks about what baptism means. Baptism is burial because you are literally saying, my old life is dead. The, everything that I counted as precious to myself I've given over to Christ. That's why we go underwater when we baptize. You're being buried in baptism. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. There's different ways that this is described throughout the New Testament, but it's described as killing yourself sometimes. In Romans 8, um, Paul talks about how we ought to deal with the flesh, with the body. With What he means by that, by the way, is just your sinful urges, the things, the temptations that, that, that you struggle with. And he puts it this way. If you live according to the flesh, if you go along with all that, he says, you'll die. You'll die in the end, in other words. But he says, if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So there you see it, that the New Testament is, the gospel is a call on you to die, to start killing yourself, as it were. Killing your, your, um, your passions, your urges, the things which, which pull you away from Christ. 
So that someone who is truly a Christian is someone who says that I die every day. I die to myself every day. I die multiple times a day. I die moment by moment as I'm surrendering myself to God. One of the pictures that we looked at much earlier was in Romans 12 where Paul says, he appeals, he says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A picture there of being a living sacrifice is someone being alive, climbing on the altar and lying down and saying, God, here I am. You can have me. You can have all of me. I don't know what part of your life you're holding back. But it's usually the thing most precious to you. This week I was studying in Genesis and there's an amazing story there which rabbis and pastors have wrestled with all through the centuries. Abraham... The first Israelite, the man that God called and said, you're going to be the father of many peoples, the father of all the Jewish people. He had a son called Isaac. And there's a story in Genesis 22 where God says to Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which is, by the way, where the Temple Mount is today. And he says, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then the story it says three days later they begin to pack and they start their journey and then it sort of goes into slow motion. It tells us what he packs. It's almost like you can feel his whole world crashing in as he's like contemplating this decision he has to make. They begin trudging up the mountain. And the story brings us right up to the point where Isaac then asks, where's the ram? We've come up here all this way to, to make a sacrifice to the living God. He says, where's the ram? And Abraham says, God will provide a ram. And then he takes Isaac and he lays out all the wood for the offering. And then he lays Isaac upon it. And he's at the point where he holds, he's holding his knife up in the air, ready to strike. As a sign of his commitment, as a sign of his dedication and obedience to God. And it's then that God stops him. And God says, and an angel steps in and stops him and says, Abraham, Abraham. But it's a vivid picture of what it means to become a Christian. What it means to be like the two guys in the parable. What it means for us in a day-to-day -day way, once we know Christ, to die to ourselves and to start sacrificing the things that are precious to us as an offering to God. And for many people, that just means that to be a Christian, the bar is just too high. There's always something that's hard to, to give up. There's always some sin which you think, I, I need to keep doing this or there's some part of your life which you think I live for this or there's some person in your life where you think I live for them that is hard to give up if Christ were to call you to time and again through the gospels Jesus was was uh, as we've seen he, he was he was dearly loved by the crowds um, it's hardly surprising I think if you'd been alive at, around at the time you would have wanted to go see what this guy was up to and so from time to time, he's approached by different people and, and they ask, can I be one of your followers? And there's a little cameo of, of a few men um, approaching Jesus and asking him that very question in Luke chapter 9. And there, one after another, they have their sort of excuses. Luke 9, 57, a guy comes up to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he says, the cost that you'll have to pay is having a roof over your head 
If you want to be my follower, what it means for you right at this moment is that you need to be willing to become homeless. To another who said, follow me. And, and the guy says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I don't know why it's hard to analyze fully what Jesus was getting at there. But somehow we saw in that man a hesitancy to follow him, which in his circumstances was that he needed to go and perform a, a long and lengthy ritual of burial service for his father. And Jesus seeing in his heart that this is going to be his major stumbling block, his devotion to family. His family is going to come before discipleship to Christ. Christ says to him, no, let the dead bury their own dead. I'm not sure he'd say that to just anyone. But for some reason in that situation, Christ is zeroing in on the one thing that that guy can't let go of in preference for Christ. The third guy says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you are plowing a field and you look back, your furrow is going to go off. It's like trying to drive whilst looking back. Occasionally I have a quick glance at Seth when I'm in the car, which is probably dangerous. But that's the idea, is that you're going to veer off on, on a tangent. And Jesus says, no, you can't. When you come to follow me, you've got to put everything behind you. It's like the picture of Lot's wife leaving Sodom on the way out. It was because she looked back that the story tells us she was turned to a pillar of salt. There was a yearning. She was torn in her heart. I want to survive and be a righteous person and go with God. But there's also a part of me that's being pulled back to that wicked city, that place that I've called home for so long. And somehow I've not only lived in the city, but the city lives in me. And it's found its way into me. And this is the whole thing of what it means to be in the world and to be stretched and to be pulled between two worlds to say I want to follow Christ but there's something in me which is pulling me back all the time and when Jesus was confronted by this after person after person he says no you've got to make your choice there's a decision here and what I demand is absolutely everything I don't leave any part of your life for you to govern by yourself I want it all which sounds like an incredibly challenging and difficult demand which it is, and even unreasonable, which it isn't, when you know who Christ is. He says then, in these parables, you've got to give everything. The other side of it, though, is he says, you get, you get one thing in return. You give up everything, and you get just one thing, which doesn't sound like a particularly fair trait, does it? But in both cases, what happens is you look at these men, look at their, their mindset. When they find the treasure, when they find the pearl, these things become their obsession. So much so that they want to abandon everything in preference for the thing that they have found. Now let me just draw your attention to the contrast in these two stories. On the one hand, we've got a guy who is probably some kind of a peasant farm worker. And back then you didn't have banks, um, so you couldn't go and put your money in a safe deposit somewhere or exchange it for notes or your, your gold and exchange it for notes. The, um, what you had to do was, was bury it. If you wanted to hide a large sum of, of, of gold or treasure, you stick it in the ground. And that was quite a common way of storing your, your money. This peasant guy is just getting on with his job and he's probably plowing that field for a master and then... He, he finds something, you know. he finds treasure hidden from long ago. He just stumbles upon it. It's a completely accidental happenstance 
The other guy is a different story altogether. He's a merchant. He spends his days searching diligently for treasures that will be valuable elsewhere, where he can make trades. And it's his whole entire obsession and profession is to be looking for that thing, that one thing that will make him rich, so that when he finds it, he sees it, he knows it, he sells everything, he buys it. I think that Jesus deliberately chooses these two stories to contrast for us the different ways that people, um, the different ways that people encounter Christ. Some people are, are much more like the the peasant. It can be an, a completely accidental discovery. You were never even looking for religion. You were never even looking for God, and somehow, just one day, things hit you. Somebody said something to you, it impacted you, and there you are. It's in front of you, and you do something with it. On the other hand, you can be a person, I've met such people, who make, who make a search of God. Who become like the seeker who says, there's one, there's one thing I'm looking for. I need to find this thing. And there's a hunger inside, a burning or even a yearning, longing hunger inside to find what they're they know is missing in their life. They're much more like the picture of the merchant. The reason why I draw your attention to those two contrasts is to tell you that in one sense it doesn't really matter um, how you come across this thing. It doesn't matter whether you're, um, what kind of a personality you have. It doesn't matter whether, um, it, if, whether it's a diligent search or whether it's a completely accidental thing. In both cases, both these men find what they they recognize to be precious and they become utterly obsessed with it overnight. It's like it becomes their addiction. It's like falling in love. You ever met someone who's, who's fallen in love and they just drop off the face of the planet? Um, they, suddenly you were, you were great friends, you never see them again, at least for a few years. It's, it, that's it's the kind of picture that we're getting here, that these guys just suddenly have tunnel vision. They have blinkers. They find what they, they feel they need in life and it become, they become obsessed by it. And it doesn't matter how they got there. It doesn't matter how you got there. You just, it just matters that when you find it, you recognize it and you know it. Now what I want you to see is that this is one of the, the great characteristics of faith throughout the scriptures. That it is, you could call it a kind of a singular obsessive focus in men and women of God through the Bible. Let me show you a few of the Psalms which just illustrate what I'm talking about here. When I read these words, I just wonder if you are able to reflect and think, is this true of me? In Psalm 27, this is how David puts it. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Listen to that phrase, one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He said, there is one thing that my life is obsessed about and is consumed by. You remember how after he sins with Bathsheba, a year or more later when he writes a prayer of repentance in Psalm 40, uh, 51, he puts it in this way, he says, Against you, you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
The reason I read that is just to show you that David's obsession with God was so all-consuming that even when he sinned, it's almost as though he couldn't see the wrong he'd done to people all around him because it was the sin against God that mattered to him more than anything. And this is what real faith looks like in the Bible. It looks like a person who is, who is so utterly consumed with God that everything else begins to, to fade into background, that he is in color and everything else is in black and white. He is in front of you. Everything else is beside and behind you. A little bit further along, in Psalm 84, which is the one I read at the very beginning of the meeting, we see it again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now listen, he says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. He says a little bit further in verse 10, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd, I'd rather be someone who stands on the door of the temple than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather just be close to God than have a thousand pleasures in all the tents of all the people up to all kinds of things. This is what Jesus meant when he said to one group of people that you had to, to be his disciples, you had to hate your family. He didn't mean it in a literal sense, but he meant that your love for him had to so ex- exceed your love for the people around you that it becomes like the difference between love and hatred. Now, of course, we know he doesn't mean that you literally hate them because he tells us very clearly that we're called to love our neighbor, that we're called to love our parents, and so on and so on. But he's trying to find the most expressive, vivid language to paint for you a contrast between black and white, between the extremes of what it means to love God genuinely as a follower of Christ and to abandon everything else. The question then is how a person can ever make that kind of a choice. If what I've been describing to you is what it really means to come to Christ at the beginning of your walk with him and also on a daily basis as a Christian to consistently put him before you and say, I want you and everything else. I'm going to sell everything else in preference for the treasure and the pearl. How on earth do we do that? And the answer I want to put before you is that for these guys in the parables and what we see through the scriptures, is this is motivated by joy. Let me try and explain what I mean. I think that everyone, everywhere, is basically living life as a kind of a joy hunt. I don't care how you live or what you do. What, if you were to analyze your basic motivations in life, it is that you are in pursuit of joy, constantly in pursuit of joy. So one guy works hard. And he says, I don't necessarily enjoy my work, but I'm working hard because in the long run, I know it will lead to my greater joy when I can retire or when I can be at the level I want to be. Another person's lazy. Maybe that's you. You sit around, uh, don't necessarily feel particularly motivated to get on with much. I wasn't actually pointing at you, Joshua. Yeah. Sort of, uh, some of you are lazy. But the lazy person is also motivated by joy. They want to be... They think this is how I can be most, most joyful in life. Maybe you're, um, you prefer relationships and so you find yourself in the company of people. Prefer, maybe you prefer isolation. I don't care what it is or how you live. Maybe you prefer gluttony and eating. Maybe you prefer a brutal regime of fitness and 
of um, self-control. Whatever it is, however you live, the basic reason why we do the things we do at, the, at its core is that we are living lives in pursuit of joy. But the problem is that people find it so hard to find this joy that they're looking for. Or what they do find seems to slip through their fingers quicker than they've, they've managed to hold it on, onto it for. Or they find that it was more shallow than, than what they were expecting. And when people consistently find that the joy they're looking for isn't there, what do they do? So often they don't turn to religion for the answer. I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is that Christians just don't seem to be happy a lot of the time. If we're not joyful, no one's going to look at us and think, well, you've got something that I need. I think it's a biblical imperative that every person who follows Christ should be the most joyful people on the planet through any and every circumstance. I don't just mean the kind of sort of shallow whistle, a happy tune type joy. I mean the deep kind of joy that is true of you in the deepest part of your being. People don't look to Christians as well because they've completely distorted the teachings of the Bible and they become more known for what they're against than what they're for. But when you find true Christianity, you find something which is joyful. The early church gathered together and they were brimming with joy and happiness in God. And look here in these parables. It says in verse 44, it says, In his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what I'm trying to suggest to you today is that even though it seems like the biggest, hardest, most impossible decision in life to make a trade between, well, on the one hand, I've got everything in my life, and on the other hand, I've got this one thing that Christ is calling me to, his kingdom. How on earth do you say no to that and yes to that? And what the answer is, is that Christ puts before us what C.S. Lewis called the unblushing promises of reward. He says, ultimately, that in Christ, you're going to find that you're happier. In Hebrews 11 and 6, there's this verse which is very famous and, and well-known. I think I just read it last week, actually. But we often ignore um, the second half of it, where he says this. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, often we read that and we think, okay, it's, it's an exhortation towards the life of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Fine, so God wants us to live a life of faith. But have you ever paid attention to the second half of the verse? It says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that it exists and must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Here's how John Piper put it. He says, you cannot please God unless you come to him in search of a reward. You can't please God unless you come to him in search of a reward. Now, I think this is something you've got to take a big fat marker and underline and highlight and do whatever it is you do to imprint this on your brain. Because so many people find it so hard to embrace Christ and embrace Christianity because their perception of what that means is that they think all about the things you're denying, the things you're letting go of, all the hard parts, all the challenges. And yes, there's a cost. Christ was very clear about that, but he says the cost is so that you can embrace something much, much better. And as it says here, you can't please God unless you come to him in search of that thing. Is your heart resonating in any way with the longing to know the joy that Christ talks about? God says it pleases me when you come to me looking for it. 
One of the most famous pieces of writing C.S. Lewis wrote was an essay called The Weight of Glory. It deservedly sits as one of the greatest pieces of literature. And he shed so much light on this when he, he writes that the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial. He says, not about self-denial as an end in itself. So the guys who sell everything, they don't just do it for the sake of itself. They don't sell all they have just to make some kind of a point and become Stoics who live in the wilderness with no possessions. He says, we're told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. It's so that you can embrace something much better. And he says, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. So in other words, the Bible puts before you a promise of your deepest longings being fulfilled when you know Christ and when you live for him consistently. That's what the men in the parable discover to be true. Is that all my possessions... Yeah, I'm giving them up, but I don't count it as a loss because they were worthless in comparison to what I found. That's the logic of the trade, isn't it? The treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. These things are actually worth more than all the things they sold. The merchant knows it. He knows he can, that this thing is worth more. The peasant knows it. He knows that if I buy this field, that treasure legally belongs to me. No one can deny it to me. C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. In other words, it's not wrong to desire and not wrong to desire that God would fulfill your desires. He says, if indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. This is what we see all through the Bible. That whenever men and women make great sacrifices for God, They do it because they know that they're going to gain something much better. It's how it's put about Moses in in Hebrews 11. Brought up as he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. It says when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he refused to be one of the royals in the wealthiest family on the planet. Why? Why that level of self-denial? It says choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, he didn't enjoy being poor just for the sake of it. He says, I've got something much better in gaining Christ than in all the treasures that could be mine in Egypt. I could have any woman I want. I could have any possession I want. I could have all the slaves I could imagine. All of it is worthless in comparison to Christ. He says, I found the treasure. I found the pearl. The same is true of all the men and women of God through the scriptures. You look at a psalm like Psalm 16. And how he describes the joy that he's found in God. 
Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We heard that. I have no good apart from you. Everything else in my life is, is, is rubbish in comparison to you. Paul also said this about his knowledge of God and his faith in Christ in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 and verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, this is before he knew God, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Time and time again, this is the universal story of the scriptures, that people who found Christ have found something better, something more fulfilling, more joyful than all that they knew of in life beforehand. And it's all worth giving up in preference for him. So when you ask the question, how is it possible to make this trade? The answer is, it's not hard at all when you've really seen who Jesus is. When you have eyes to see the treasure, when you have eyes to see the pearl, I don't care whether this has been, whether in, in discovering Christ it's, it's the result of a long search or just an accident that someone told you about him one day and you weren't even asking the questions. Ultimately, the Bible says it's all conducted by God. He came in search of you. Jesus tells us the parables that illustrate that fact, that God is the one who comes looking for you. So whether you, it's never an accident that you discover Christ. But having found him, we all have to make the decision. We all have to make the decision on a daily basis to take up our cross, as Christ put it, and follow him. In other words, you carry around the implement of your death every day. You carry around your crucifixion, your torture instrument, instrument every day to keep killing that part of you that wants to turn back to the world. What is it that you're being drawn to? What is it that is distracting you from devotion to Christ? What is it that resonates with you and which sucks you and which promises you things that Christ says, no, I promise you better? He says, you've got to take up your cross and kill it. You've got to keep killing it every single day. But not so that you can have an empty life. Not so that you can have a life that's just full of misery and gritting your teeth and self-denial. But so that you can have a life that is full and is acceptable to God in Christ. Now if I take you back to that story in Genesis 22 where Abraham was poised, holding the knife above his son Isaac as an act of obedience and devotion to the God who'd spoken to him. That moment, the angel steps in in verse 11 and says to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up 
as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is how the gospel works. That in our willingness to die, as Abraham was willing to kill, in our willingness to die to ourselves and to put to death the things that are precious to us, God comes in and says, I'm not only going to save you, I'm going to fill your life with the things you want and desire. God, as it were, makes an exchange. He says, okay, I'll take all that off your hands, but I will give you Christ, and in giving you Christ, and in in you demonstrating your love and devotion to me, I will give you far more than you have asked or imagined. And in the story, the ram is a picture, of course, of, of Christ himself. How we, like Isaac, ought to be laid on the altar and put to death for our sin. But the ram is a substitute. And God provided the ram. The ram was caught in the thicket as if by chance, but arranged by God. And Abraham is able to take the ram and kill the ram in Isaac's place. It's a picture of God's willingness to pay the price for our sin. And therefore, if he paid the price with giving his son who died on the cross, it's impossible for us to give up more than he'll give us in return. He's demonstrated the extent of his love and devotion to us. So that whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is that, that draws you back, as it were, to the world, whatever it is that you're finding is a daily battle, God says, I will give you far more, and the proof of it is that I have given you my son. He's the ram. He's the replacement. He's my provision for you. 